0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today, I'd like to talk with you about a theme that's woven really throughout the New Testament and is very significant today for leaders. I want to talk with you about the issue of self-control. Now, I first became interested in this topic because the phrase itself, self-control, is presented as being in the context of a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't you hear a little bit of contradiction there? Self, control, spirit, fruit. How is it that the Holy Spirit produces something that is described as originating in self? So this paradox, if you will, captured my attention and caused me to take a good look at what the Bible says, particularly the New Testament says, about the subject of self-control. And I'd like to share with you some of what I've learned here today, and then particularly talk about the application of this in leadership. Now you might be thinking, well, yeah, but self-control, that thats a that's something that's really hard today. And it's harder today than perhaps it's ever been because of so many temptations and difficulties that we all face. Well, there are a lot of temptations and difficulties today, but really self-control is no more difficult today than it's ever been. Let me read you a translation of an ancient historian, Polybius. He wrote, considering the subject of self-control in the uh, roughly the era in which Jesus lived. He's talking about a particular young man, and he says the first direction to leading a virtuous life was to attain a reputation for temperance. And that word temperance is here translated, is the same word translated in the New Testament as self-control. So the first direction in having the ambition to lead a virtuous life is to attain a reputation for temperance or self-control, and excel in this respect all the other young men at the same age. This is a high prize indeed and difficult to gain, but it was at this time easy to pursue at Rome owing to the vicious tendencies of most of the youth. For some of them had abandoned themselves to amours with boys, and others to the society of courtesans and many to musical entertainments and banquets and the extravagance they involve, having in the course of the war with Persis been speedily infected by the Greek laxity in these respects. So great in fact was the incontinence that had broken out among the young men in such matters that many paid a talent For a male favorite, and many 300 drachmas for a jar of caviar. Well, even in the translation, which is a little bit difficult to read, it's easy to pick up what was happening. Young men were having sexual relationships with other young men and with other young women. Participating in musical entertainments and banquets, meaning they were going to wild parties that were marked by the extravagance of sexual escapades, overeating, and of course, flowing alcohol. That's a description of what a young man was facing in the first century world. That is not so different as what we're facing today. And so, for young men and young women, for leaders of all ages, The issue of self-control is significant. Looking into the Bible, one of the first things I discovered is that there are not one, but actually seven different words in the Greek language which are translated self-control in the New Testament. Let's review how the word is used in some of the contexts. First of all, the first one of these words, inkratuomai, is used to describe self-control as a characteristic of faithful Christians and faithful Christian leaders. For example, in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-four to 27 the Bible says, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. And then in Titus 2, 1 through 8, there's a listing of qualities of older men, older women, and younger men, and it says older men are to be self-controlled. And then it says older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. And then it says young men are to be self-controlled. And so we see this first word used to describe self-control as a quality of Christians and certainly a quality of Christian leaders. Then we move to the second word, kalino, uh, excuse me, kalino gogeo. Now you may say, Jeff, are you struggling with your Greek pronunciations? Yes, I am. But I'm trying to give you these seven different Greek words. These are self-control found in various lists in the New Testament. Like, for example, the one I've referenced in the introduction, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And self control, and then in Second Peter, uh, chapter one, Peter has his own listing. He says, "For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self control, and then self control with endurance, and on and on." And then he describes in Second uh, Timothy two or Second Timothy chapter four. Paul then describes some qualities or characteristics. Of pastors, And he says they are to exercise self-control in everything. And so we see this second word describes self-control as being a quality of Christians and a quality, certainly, of Christian leaders. Then we move to a third word, which is the word nepho. This word describes self-control in the context of restraint or moderation and challenges us to hold ourselves back in certain areas. Lots of examples of this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 is a good example as it describes what it means to be an overseer. An overseer is above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled. First Timothy 3, talking about the wives of these leaders, they are also to be self-controlled. 1 Thessalonians 5 describes everyone being responsible to live a life of self-control. I could go on and on and on looking at these different ideas or these different topics. Then a fourth word, gumnazo, gumnazo which helps us to understand the concept of self-control as being sober-minded. It means to be uh, uh, to, to be alert, to be careful, to be aware, to be watching for what's going on around you. You can find an example of this in First Timothy four seven. Have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, engage in godliness. Practice in self control, leading to godliness. Now, the next word is upopitzo, and it's in First Corinthians nine twenty seven. He says, "I discipline myself, or I self control myself, to bring my body under strict control." That. After preaching to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Another one of these words is afadia, and this is a word that describes uh, using uh, severe treatment of the body as an example of self-control. Colossians 2.23, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. This is actually bringing contrast to true self-control as opposed to this fleshly or worldly kind. And then the final word is Sophron. And this is in Titus chapter 2, which again lists these various kinds of self-control that are required for all believers and particularly for leaders. Well, even though I stumbled over some of those Greek words, I want you to walk away with this understanding of that particular study. There's seven Greek words in the New Testament that are translated self-control or in some way affiliated with the concept of self-control. These seven words are found in lists, they are found in images, they are found in instructions, they are associated with everyday believers as well as pastors and other leaders. These words are used throughout the New Testament by all the different writers to describe a core quality for those of us who find ourselves in Christian leadership. Now, one of the stories that I find intriguing about this issue is what happened at the end of Peter's life when he was with Jesus in the garden for that all-night prayer meeting just prior to the crucifixion. In that context, Peter failed an early test of self-control you know what happened Jesus was confronted by those soldiers and Peter pulled out his sword slashed at the crowd and cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant a man named Malchus Peter impetuously tried to solve the wrong problem the wrong way at the wrong time in the wrong place he lost control now you might say, well, yeah, but there's some things about the situation that, that we need to factor in to help understand what happened. He Peter was probably tired. He had slept fitfully the previous night and was up again the second night. So no doubt he was physically exhausted. He was probably hungry. The mob arrived near daybreak, meaning that Peter had been with Jesus all night long and was ready for that morning breakfast, which never came. And He might have also been intimidated by what was happening and frustrated by the fact that his friend, his Lord, his master, the person to whom he was devoted, was being attacked. And so consequently, he lashed out. Look, I'm not saying these things weren't true. It's true that Peter was likely fatigued and hungry and threatened. But that's the way it is in leadership. We don't get to face the trying circumstances, which demand a demonstration of self-control, we don't get to face those on our timetable or when we want to, or when it's convenient, or when we're rested and well-fed and feeling good about ourselves and the people around us. No, no. Our self-control is challenged in these same kind of circumstances. So after Peter whipped out his sword and whacked off that ear, Jesus rebuked Peter, restored Malchus's ear, and condemned the violence. He told Peter to put his sword away lest he die by the same means. And then Jesus asked three rhetorical questions. Again, this pattern of three that we've seen before in Peter's life and talked about here on the podcast, he asked three questions. Jesus asked, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And then how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And then finally, am I not to drink the cup the father has given me? So Peter accompanied by the rest of the disciples made his second spur of the moment decision that demonstrated a lack of self-control in the moment. He Deserted Jesus. Self-control is required in difficult situations. And it's required to sustain us and keep us faithful in our service. You know, being impetuous is a common quality. Of younger leaders. If you're a younger leader, you may be still really struggling with the discipline of self restraint. It is difficult to hold yourself back when God seems slow to act, and it's difficult to wait for his timing. Peter no doubt thought Jesus' situation was desperate and he needed to intervene, but Jesus had a different perspective. Jesus understood God's plan, God's timing, and God's purpose. But Peter's limited perspective and his fatigue and his spiritual dullness and his impulsive personality and all the other factors at play in this particular moment all contributed to his choice to whip out his sword and start fighting and then, when that was unsuccessful, to run away into the night. Now, Obviously, Peter's dilemma in the Garden of Gethsemane was unique. But the principle of practicing self-restraint in the face of troubling circumstances, when God seems slow to act, applies in many leadership situations. That's why there are seven different words for self-control, and that's why the concept of self-control is interwoven throughout the fabric of the New Testament That's why the major New Testament writers all talk about this theme, and particularly, while it's described as being important for all believers, it's also singled out specifically as one of the qualities to look for in pastoral leaders and in Christian leaders in general. So, self-control matters. It's hard to hold yourself back, however, when everything in you wants to lash out, or flee, or move forward, or fire off an email, or send a tweet, or otherwise express yourself in harmful ways. Taking charge of your emotions and measuring your response in heated moments is an essential, demonstrable skill of Christian leaders. Self-control, it's essential. Now, we know that self-control is called a fruit of the Spirit in the Bible, and so if you're feeling a little oppressed right now and think, well, I know I've got to have self-control. How do I get more? How do I drum it up? How do I work it up? How do I find within me the strength to control myself in every circumstance? Well, you can't do it. That's why self-control is described as a fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's described as an evidence of Christian character. That's why it's described as a result of sanctification. That's why it's couched always in the New Testament in the context of what it means to really demonstrate the legitimacy of your Christian faith because self control is a spirit produced reality. So, part of finding self control is humbling yourself and admitting you don't have it, and asking God to put it in you. We don't have any problem praying this way for the other fruit of the Spirit. We ask God for patience. We ask God for kindness. We have no problem with that. I'm also uh, advocating for you today that you pray and ask God for self-control that you ask God to produce by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit within you self-control. Now, demonstrating self-control means that you practice restraint, that you hold yourself back, that you set parameters or barriers or limits for yourself. Some of those might grow out of Scripture Others you might impose just because of wisdom in the culture in which we're living. But nevertheless, self-control or self-restraint means that you create limits or barriers or parameters and you stay within them. And whatever emotions you're feeling, whatever impulses you're, that are surging, whatever anger or fear is rising up within you, You'd make the choice to demonstrate restraint, to demonstrate self-control. Now, self-control is a significant challenge for leaders in several areas. Let me talk first of all about emotional self-control, and I've already alluded to it in in my statement I just made about fear and anger. The two most troublesome emotions for leaders are fear and anger. Fear is a problem because it makes you timid or afraid to do the right thing, the right way, at the right time. Fear will hold you back. Making decisions or not making decisions based on fear often leads to short sighted, least common denominator results rather than bold, innovative, visionary actions. When fear controls you. It holds you back. The opposite is anger. Anger, on the other hand, promotes rash decisions. Now, these may produce immediate relief. You might feel better in the moment, but they don't have long range profitability. When a leader responds in anger, the result is usually damaged relationships Damaged organizational structure, damaged commitment to mission, anger does damage when it's expressed inappropriately. Self-control means that a leader, empowered by the Holy Spirit, takes control of their emotions so that they are not ruled by fear or anger. And they certainly don't make decisions motivated by fear or anger, and they do not allow fear or anger to be the driving force in a leadership moment. Remember, it takes self-control to resist fear, just like it takes self-control to resist anger. And if you allow either of these emotions to take control of you, one will hold you back, the other one will push you forward. Neither one in a way that's healthy for you, the relationships of the people you're working with, or the organization you're trying to lead. Now, let me be clear to say that self-control or self-restraint in the area of emotions doesn't mean you deny your emotions or that you ignore them. Self-control doesn't mean that you never feel fear or that you never feel anger. In fact, if you're saying that you never feel either of those emotions, you're living in denial. Reality is you're going to feel both. You're going to feel fear, and you're going to feel feel anger. So self-control isn't about denying emotion. It's about owning it. It's about owning it, branding it, and keeping it pinned up until you're ready to release it in a healthy way. Self-restraint acknowledges that there are many emotional var, emotional variables at play in our lives all the time. But we decide how to move forward as leaders, not driven by our emotions, fear, or anger, but driven by our organization's mission and vision and values, and driven by the policies and procedures and convictions that mark us as leaders and define our organizational responsibility. We don't allow emotion to drive us. Again, we don't deny our emotions. We don't say they're not important. We don't pretend they're not real. But self-control means that we set some limits on the effect our emotions have on us in leadership decision-making. Another area we have to demonstrate Self-restraint is in our moral choices, and I'm not going to talk about that one very much on the podcast today because I've done whole podcasts on this in the past, but self-control for leaders expresses itself in the moral choices that we make, how we relate to our sexuality and how we relate to people around us uh, and in that, that require of us appropriate and careful and controlled behavior. Here's another area for leaders. And that's self-restraint about money. You know, the more leadership responsibility you have, the more discretionary use of funds that you also have. For example, here at Gateway, I have a uh, expense account that uh, I'm able to use to pay the ministry expenses that are incurred by my serving as president. And that's a privilege that I, I don't take lightly. I have to show some restraint in using that account. There's no one traveling with me and telling me where I can eat or where I can sleep or what kind of car I'm going to drive. And quite frankly, uh, I could probably get away with some things that people would say, well, you know, he is the president. And we, we probably ought to let that, let that go because, I mean, you know, after all, he is uh, representing the seminary at the highest levels. And I've heard all those reasons and arguments, but I have to practice self-restraint on the use of money that's allocated to my, um, my ministry expense account and not just that account, but in the ministry that I money that I spend on behalf of the seminary. Restraint means that you take careful notice of how you're spending money on where you eat and where you sleep and what kind of car you're driving and how you fly and what you do while you're out there representing your organization. And it has the same impact when you're spending money on behalf of your organization, Not that you spend as much as you can get away with or as much as you think you're due because of the role that you have, but no, you back up and say, I need to show some restraint here and do what's appropriate based on the mission, vision, and values of organization and to honor the people who've made this resource possible in my life. So self-control is important in the area of emotions and morals and money but I want to give you one more today. And that is self-control is also important for leaders in the area of time management. You know, the higher you rise in leadership, the less structured your schedule. You may say, well, yeah, don't you just work all the time? No, you, you can't do that. And I've done podcasts about that, so I won't focus on that issue today either. But I would like to talk about the importance of having a clearly defined work ethic and being strongly invested in the work time that you've been allotted as a leader. I'm responsible to get my job done here at Gateway Seminary, and to do that, I have to allocate appropriate time and make sure that I use that time wisely and well to get my job done. That means I have to be at work at a certain time and I go home at a certain time. And while I'm here, I work hard at the time that I'm in the office and getting work done. And when I go on the road, I plan my time so that I'm able to be effective and efficient and get as much done as possible even while I'm traveling time. Now, what I'm about to say is a dirty little secret of ministry leadership. And that is ministry leadership is a place where you can... Waste a lot of time, hide a lot of unproductivity, and quite frankly, be lazy. Wow, did I just say that on the podcast? Yes, I did. You see, when no one's making you punch a time clock and when no one's holding you accountable minute by minute for the work that you do through the day, it's easy to drift into a lifestyle that has less productivity, less discipline and less focus about making sure that you use the amount of time allotted to get work done. Now, self-restraint is about setting a schedule, honoring that schedule and getting the work done that's required. Now, Some of you are thinking, oh, but that's not a problem for me because there's way more work than I ever have time to do. Well, then you need to reevaluate your schedule and take a giant step back because that's not wise. But the opposite problem also exists, and that is saying, well, you know, I've worked hard. I need some extra time off. I went in early yesterday. I get to go home early late or came in late yesterday. I should go home earlier today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look. Self-restraint requires us to use our time well and wisely. And when it's work time, show up and get the work done. Recognize that the Bible calls us to meaningful work, assigns us a six-day work week, and says, get the work done. Be sure you get your rest in. But when you're working, you need to show up and work and really work and be productive in the time that you've been allotted. Today, I've talked about self-control. I got started on this because I became fascinated with the idea of self-control being a spirit-produced quality. Self-control and spirit-produced are not mutually exclusive, and they're certainly not contradictory. We need self-control. We will get it by depending on the Holy Spirit to produce it in our lives as one of the character qualities that marks us as believers and certainly marks us as Christian leaders. Seven words in the New Testament are translated self-control or one of its synonyms. It's used in a variety of contexts by a variety of writers to show us that this idea of self-control is important for all believers, but particularly for leaders. If you're a leader here, you've gotta restrain yourself. You've gotta set some limits, some parameters, some rules, some guidelines on how your emotions, your morality, your money, and your time are going to be used. And you have to be disciplined about those things so that you are a model of self-control. You might be saying, yeah, but it's really hard to do that today. And I would say in response, it is absolutely hard to do it today. But that makes it even more important. Because as you demonstrate self-control, as self-restraint marks your life as a leader, as you manage your emotions, your morals, your money, and your time in such a way that people see you being very different than secular leaders around them, they will see the mark of Christian leadership even more clearly in your life. Self-control is a spirit-produced asset for leaders. It's a common description of Christian sanctification and it's a specific quality for Christian leaders as clearly laid out in scripture. Ask God by the power of the Holy Spirit to enhance your self-control so that you might demonstrate greater restraint in key areas and by doing so, model what it really means to be a Christian leader. Put it into practice as you lead on.